This episode of Contracting Conversations is brought to you by BSCAI Smart Brief, a free weekly newsletter delivering curated industry news and information to your inbox each Thursday. Subscribe at bscaiorg smartbrief. Welcome to Contracting Conversations, a podcast series from BSCAI. Through a series of interviews with entrepreneurs, business owners, and executives, this podcast aims to provide insights, trends, and tactics to support the growth and development of business owners serving the contract cleaning and facility maintenance industry. Welcome to Contracting Conversations, the official podcast of BSEAI. I am your host, Kate Jacobson. Joining me today is Dr. Eugene Cole. He is a former professor of environmental health sciences at Brigham Young University and a consultant to the World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and the U.S. Federal Trade Commission. He currently serves on the Cleaning Industry Research Institute's Scientific Advisory Committee. Today, we're going to discuss COVID-19 and how it's impacting building service contractors around the world and how it will impact the industry going forward. Support for Contracting Conversations comes from our premier partners, 3M, Diversi, and Karcher. Learn more about our partners and their category-leading solutions for contractors at bscaiorg partners. Thank you so much for coming and joining me today. I appreciate it. Um, obviously, COVID-19 has everybody really stress that it's really changed everything we do, but especially for BSCs who are right on the front lines having to deal with their customers, having to deal with how to even react to a pandemic. Um, so I'm hoping to get your perspective about, you know, what this means for the industry now and what it means for the industry going forward. Um, so my first question is, you're a pandemic expert, so what makes, what makes something a pandemic versus an outbreak? Like, and why is it important to note that distinction? Well, an outbreak is the number of cases of a disease uh, that is above normal in a particular area. So it could be within a large city. Uh, it could be within a state. In other words, it begins to get out of control of local health officials and the health department. A pandemic begins to spread by definition. Uh, it's more countries. Uh, in at least two of WHO regions of the world. They divide the uh, world into six regions. And so as soon as there are two or more countries in one region and at least one in a second region, it technically becomes a pandemic. And pandemic by definition, other than that, means sustained human-to-human -human transmission. And it's highly infectious. And so it begins to spread rapidly. Um, the SARS epidemic in 2002-2003 technically was a pandemic in terms of numbers of countries. It reached at least 30 different countries, um, more than one WHO region. But uh, there was no real sustained human-to-human -human transmission. Those that contracted the disease were in close contact with someone else 
Then they got on a plane, flew somewhere like to Toronto, Canada, and then infected healthcare personnel. And uh, the healthcare personnel uh, suffered severely from that because of close contact. So it was extra close contact with SARS as the main vehicle of transmission. Here with COVID-19, it's much more infectious and um, we're recognizing not only contact with individuals that have symptoms or tested positive or are a healthcare personnel or home caregiver, but apparently through no known vehicle uh, transmission that they're aware of other than high contact surfaces, for example, um, wherever they work, wherever they go to school, um, you know, a lot of contamination on surfaces and hence, particularly in the remediation restoration cleaning industries at this point in time, uh, the emphasis is on hard surface cleaning and differentiating between cleaning and just disinfection and emphasizing cleaning, which is the removal of whatever residual material are on these surfaces, desktop, countertop, tabletop, um, you know, door handle, uh, that type of thing, um, and physically removing that and then following it with a disinfectant. And then there's a the whole issue of worker protection. Uh, so every pandemic is different. Historically, uh, we have uh, a flu pandemic every year. And uh, it's just that we're used to those. And we don't have travel bans or uh, businesses closing, people self-quarantining. Um, because every cold and flu season, everyone gets sick at least once. They have a cold or they have the flu or they have both. Um, and everyone gets a flu shot or almost everyone. And they, they feel really bad. They stay home. They self-medicate. And then they go back to work. Um, but flu season is just as infectious in terms of transmission as this COVID-19 virus. And to give you an example, two years ago in the 2017-2018 cold and flu season, we had a particularly bad um, influenza A virus that circulated uh, around the globe. These viruses continue to circulate. And just in the United States alone, there were 45 million people infected. There were over 800,000 hospitalizations and over 60,000 people died. I mean, right now, that's magnitudes worse than what we have now with, with COVID-19. Uh, but again, we didn't have mandatory quarantining, travel bans, businesses closing, and that type of thing. I think we were a little bit too complacent then and things that we're doing now in terms of emphasizing social distancing and hand washing um, should have been emphasized back then. I mean, it took its toll. Uh, for the last 10 years, every cold and flu season, just from flu, there's been anywhere from 15,000 to as much as 70,000 deaths. So, wow. And again, you hear some folks put things into perspective, you know, 55 to 60,000 people die every year in car accidents and so forth. We don't ban cars and so on. It's not a great analogy, but we do want to put this into perspective. It is extremely infectious. 
Um, it has developed a mutation that has allowed it to jump from animals to man, and that transmission factor allows it to be highly infectious. We don't know how many coronaviruses it takes right now to institute an infection in someone and progressive disease, but um, it doesn't matter because everyone's different. And whether someone becomes infected or not, and whether after infection they develop disease or not, depends on their immune system, which is dictated by their uh, heredity, their genome, and whatever else they've been exposed to in life, and what their chronic conditions are right now, and their age and gender. So um, I, I'm probably saying too much at this point, but eventually I think there's no question everyone on this planet will be exposed to this virus at some point in time. There will be a second wave when restrictions are eased and people begin to uh, return to work. I think there'll still be social distancing and um, emphasis on hand washing and other hygiene measures. Uh, but everyone eventually will be exposed. Right now we're in a race to develop a vaccine and as many different treatments as possible so people don't die in the meantime. Um, so we just have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, I think that's um, really interesting what you're saying about how we should have been doing some of these things back in 2018 when, you know, we had these bad flu seasons. Kind of, you know, sometimes to change industries, you have to have some really bad wake-up call kind of like this. For the cleaning industry, I know this has made a lot of our our members at BSCA, I go, huh, my best practices maybe aren't the best practices. Maybe I need to be doing these types of things more regularly, or maybe I need to be thinking about kind of what my stockpile of PPE is or you know, what kind of products that I'm using. How do you think this is going to affect cleaners in particular in the, in the interim and then also going forward in the future? That's a great question, and, and I agree that um, there will be carryover from this pandemic into the regular cold and flu season for years and years to come. Um, any type of respiratory infection that spreads throughout a population uh, will now be given respect. People just from this pandemic will remember social distancing, and I've got to stay away from sick people. Um, if I have to care for someone who's ill with a respiratory infection, I've got to do a lot of hand washing and restrict them to one room in the home and one bathroom that's just theirs and basically quarantine them. Uh, so a lot of these things will help to change behavior that should have been changed uh, years ago with yeah. thousands of dying from cold and flu every year. Uh, typically on average, it's about 35 to 37,000 people that die from just flu. And you have others that die from cold viruses or adenoviruses. I mean, there's a whole slew of respiratory disease agents. Um, and they tend to affect and result in death more often if people have chronic respiratory diseases. So they have COPD, they have chronic bronchitis, they have moderate to severe asthma, uh, and so forth. People are going to be more aware of risk factors uh, in this regard. Um, you know, people that um, have heart problems, uh, they're on medication for, uh, they're severely overweight or obese. They, 
these are things that play a role in how the disease progresses in their body. Uh, and now, the emphasis on cleaning is one that's extremely important. You know, for decades, cleaners, remediators, restorers um, are used to maybe going in and blasting things with a biocide uh, and then cleaning up and then doing it again. Um, but first and foremost, disinfection isn't cleaning. Now, there are products that are cleaner disinfectants, but one good thing about this particular pandemic and this coronavirus, it's what we call an envelope virus. You've probably heard of that. It has an outer lipid coat, makes it very susceptible to inactivation by detergents. Actually, soapy water will work to inactivate it. But if you're using soapy water on a surface, you're also removing it. And that's more important than trying to kill it in place. And we learned this years ago when uh, everyone was looking at, again, spraying something on surfaces, uh, particularly in healthcare environments, to kill these certain infectious agents. Well, they would do that, but then you still have a residual. And some of those are allergenic, and you still have to clean and remove the residual, or people can suffer the effects of exposure to dead bacterial cells, inactivated uh, viral nucleic acid, so on. Uh, so we're back to cleaning again, physical removal of what we don't want to be there. Whereas Dr. Michael Berry from the EPA uh, said years ago and started the concept of cleaning for health. You clean for health first rather than appearance. Appearance is second. And so recently I've been conducting, I'm in the second year, well, until it was cut short by the pandemic, in uh, public elementary schools looking to decrease infectious agent transmission rates and hence reduce absenteeism. And um, it's, it's been a challenge, especially working with custodians and the training and the behavior change. And so for most of them, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years on the job, you know, they want those floors to be clean and sparkle and well, we're not talking here about floors when we're talking about infectious disease transmission. We're talking about everything those kids touch and what they smear on those desktops and everything else they touch. And so um, the pandemic is definitely helping this learning curve. Uh, behaviors need to change as far as custodial personnel as well as professional contractors that come in and do coronavirus cleanup, for example. Uh, myself and my firm have gotten quite a few calls from uh, professionals, contractors. Do you have a coronavirus cleanup protocol for us? What do we need to know or do that we haven't been doing before? Um, not a lot of changes, but again, an emphasis certainly on cleaning first and then disinfecting. And then the personal protective equipment, workers need to be healthy. Um, but education and training with workers who are going to do coronavirus cleanup, um, so they're not afraid. In fact, <clears throat> I've talked with some uh, restoration contractors recently, and uh, a number of them said, well, the first thing we do when we go in is we fog everything with a 
disinfectant that also deodorizes. He said, my workers feel better. Uh, you know, they're, they're less fearful. It deodorizes, so it smells nicer. He said, then we still go ahead and we focus on cleaning. Then we go ahead and we hit it with another disinfectant application. And, uh, and that's fine if they want to take the extra time and expense to do the fogging. Uh, right. They still have to focus on the cleaning and the workers have to be protected. And then, as I've been recommending to a number of folks and committees and organizations across the country, is that folks that go in and do, for example, coronavirus cleanup, uh, when they're finished, of course, their report goes to management and uh, whoever sees that building or that complex of buildings, and they've documented what they've done, and they need to remind management that, okay, your custodial personnel need to continue what we just finished. So we've done an extremely thorough job, but now your custodial personnel need to continue, and they need to continue on a reasonable frequency. And so this is an important point I want to, I want to make now. Uh, frequency is so important. Now, there was a great study that was just published in the last two to three years um, trying to address the question, once um, cleaning and disinfection of a hard surface that is what we call a high contact surface, um, so a lot of contamination, and we may have bacteria and viruses and fungi and so forth, when that is effectively cleaned and disinfected, how long does it take before all of those microbes repopulate that surface? Okay, yeah. and the answer, 72 hours. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Three days, okay. That's a lot and, quicker than I think people realize. Yes, and it, so, I mean, this is their, you know, desktops, if they're doing it themselves with disinfectant wipes or the custodians who are doing, uh, if it's in schools, they're do, doing desks and cafeteria tables, if it's in offices, you know, I mean, office break rooms, for example, my goodness, um, you know, refrigerators and microwaves and where anyone sets their food down and so on. It's probably long before 72 hours. But the concept of frequency, keeping the burden, the bio burden down, makes perfect sense. And so some may balk and say, well, wait a minute, that's, you know, going to be increased labor and cost. Well, it doesn't have to be. The custodians are already employed. They have effective products, um, you know, industrial grade. It's just a question of where they emphasize and put their time and effort. Again, the floor is less important. Uh, in the study I've been doing in an entire school district here in rural North Carolina, uh, we had to, with the support of the district, uh, change the behavior of these custodians and the way they perceived cleaning uh, to the point where we said, okay, you're all cleaning the floor you know, every day of the week, Monday through Friday, but we're trying to prevent disease transmission and reduce absenteeism in the schools. So um, what you'll do now, we had the support of the superintendent, was um, you can clean floors and make them sparkly clean and everything Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But Tuesday and Thursday, you're going to clean and disinfect every desktop, every rest restroom surface, 
every door plate, handle, doorknob, so forth. Um, and it was a challenge, just behavior change. Custodians would say, well, the teachers are going to be upset. Their floor isn't clean. So they're in tune. They know what we're doing. Um, and this is for everyone's benefit. So again, back to this pandemic, uh, it's going to instill hopefully some positive behavior change principles that folks need to understand. And so this is something that um, in being part of the Scientific Advisory Committee for Siri, the Cleaning Industry uh, Research Institute, uh, they were trying to get across that the research is telling us how we should change our approach to things. Uh, such as how often do we need to re-clean and disinfect, and how should we do it, I mean, down to the level of where uh, we know now cleaning a surface that's, let's say, a square meter or less, or a typical desk in a schoolroom or a conference room table, um, how should that be appropriately cleaned? Well, first of all, whatever you're applying needs a dwell time, especially if it's a cleaner disinfectant combination product, uh, and then hand cleaned, you know, using a towel that can be folded multiple times. So it's actually picking up contaminant residue rather than smearing it across the surface. Um, interestingly, and we've been including post-cleaning uh, assessment in uh, the school study we're doing, and we began to take duplicate samples just a few inches away from each other. Now, ATP isn't specific for um, viruses or bacteria or anything, but anything organic. So skin cells that are shed, uh, residues of saliva, people coughing, sneezing, uh, whatever people had for lunch or that type of thing increases the uh, value of the ATP reading. And then afterwards, it should be much, much lower if the cleaning was effective. In these duplicate samples, just a few inches away from one another, one would be very low, for example, and another one would be high, indicating that surface wasn't effectively clean. Someone picked up their cloth or their reusable microfiber um, cloth at a certain point. Uh, they didn't effectively clean. and so. One emphasis, too, is for, you know, post-cleaning monitoring uh, to be done by those who are interested in how effective your cleaning is uh, mm -hmm. relative to future outbreaks, pandemics. It doesn't have to be a pandemic, but normal cold and flu season, for example. And then really year-round, uh, you know, what happens to flu viruses in the spring and summer? Well, they still circulate, but most people are outdoors. And there's a whole other group of viruses that affect yeah. us. And those typically produce gastroenteritis, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, uh, that type of thing. So we're still into appropriate cleaning and disinfecting. I need to stop and give you time to talk. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think this is fascinating. I think that, you know, like just from what we've been hearing from our members is just that it's this has been like a like a bomb dropped, you know, like that they they had all these cleaning schedules put together, they had all these things, all the ducks in a row, and then this has just thrown a huge wrench in not only 
how they clean, but considering what types of training they have to retrain custodial staff and janitor staff like right now because they have to do high-touch surfaces and they have to understand the difference between disinfecting and sanitizing. And it's, it's, it can be scary isn't the right word. I think it can be a little overwhelming for business service contractors, but it's something like you said that if it, it, it has a lot of longevity, these are things that can be implemented years down the road and then the next time hopefully this doesn't happen for a while but if anything ever did happen like this again it's they've got a little bit more of a playbook to go on than you know totally upending how they do their business yes I, you're absolutely right and i would approach it with you know building service contractors um from this standpoint look what you've been doing over the years is great and it works all you need to do now because of this pandemic and in the future is make slight modifications to what you've been doing and doing it well and don't feel overwhelmed don't feel there's going to be you know major cost involved um, but institute these changes there will be training uh, as i said we've not only had to in this school district initiate training with uh, custodial supervisors, facility director, uh, and the custodians themselves, but we've had to constantly reinforce that from different directions, from the administration, from those of us doing the research and so forth, and just gently saying, did you remember to do this or this? Are you actually cleaning the surface, you know, um, that way? Uh, do you remember what we showed you in the training session? And, you know, just, hey, we appreciate what you're doing, you're doing a great job, but um, things are a little bit different now in the world. And of course, for years to come, things are going to be different. I, I don't think people are going to be shaking hands again for a long time. Yeah, I'm not. I'm like, get away from me. <laughs> yes, and uh, people in their office uh, spaces, cubicles, whatever, everybody's going to have their disinfectant wipes and their hand sanitizer and and so it's going to be beneficial. Um, so those are some of the good things that come out of this. And we don't know yet because we haven't implemented widespread national testing. But right now, much of the data across the country is telling us that the more we test people and the more positive tests that we get, the fewer there are in that group that actually have the disease and that they're not being hospitalized and so forth. And so that's lowering the mortality rate. Uh, yeah. So again, it's a virus. It's exactly like cold and flu. It's easily transmittable. Um, just like flu viruses, we have the same category of uh, risk factors, you know, elderly, male, chronic respiratory diseases, and then other chronic conditions that indicates they don't have a fully functioning uh, immune system. Um, now, I've been dealing with uh, an issue for a few years now, and um, actually I've worked with a former student of mine who's now in medical school, and um, we actually produced a paper that we're revising now because of coronavirus on the situation in long-term care facilities, and we're already seeing, you know, the spread in assisted living, nursing homes. Uh, skilled nursing facilities and that type of thing. Um, and it wasn't acceptable before, it's not acceptable now. 
and hopefully things will be different. Uh, the CDC doesn't typically deal with long-term care facilities. They deal right. mainly with tertiary, large medical centers. Uh, they don't require that assisted living facilities, for example, uh, have infection control protocols, infection control training, and you get a situation, for example, where one of their residents, you know, Mrs. Uh, Jones, who's 90 years of age, spikes a fever. They send her to the hospital. Two days later, the hospital calls. They say, gee, we're sorry, but she passed away. And they find out it was from methicillin-resistant staph aureus or Clostridium difficile or something that should have been better controls in the assisted living facility. And anyway, the facility director says, uh, okay, thank you very much. And uh, they inform the family. And then everyone just agrees, family too, that yeah, she was old, she had a lot of problems. When in reality, they contributed to her demise because what they want to do when they get notified is move Mrs. Jones's things out of her room in the morning and move someone else in in the afternoon. What happens in between? Mopping the floor, vacuuming, which may spread the agent. Uh, who's going to do it? A custodian or a CNA with a high school diploma and no guidance on infection control whatsoever. So that's a real issue that we need to continue to focus on uh, as well. So specific environments, uh, obviously. Um, I already mentioned, uh, or maybe I didn't, um, but something that recently uh, I had to deal with with my firm, and that was um, a request to do a post-cleaning assessment so a restoration company was called in. It was an apartment complex. One person had tested positive for COVID-19. So the company went in, did their cleaning. Uh, we offered them our protocol as a reference. They said, thank you very much. Um, so we went in to do some post-cleaning effectiveness testing using ATP. We have a large database um, from our school studies primarily. And um, unfortunately, we, they didn't call us until 35 hours after the cleaning was done. Oh, it could be done right afterwards. <laughs> well, in that 35 hours, they still said to us, well, go ahead, let's see you know, how well we did, how bad it's become since then. Well, the highest values we had were on elevator buttons. Yep. Uh, people pushing the elevator buttons, touching the doors, even going into the elevator, uh, stairway handrails. You know, we get values, ATP values in the hundreds of thousands or over a million. And realistically, they should be down below 100,000 with the system we're using. Primarily 50,000 would be good evidence of cleaning. And then they had exercise or fitness center. And so looking at the results of that, I know uh, advocate for uh, professional cleaners, these contractors. Okay, if you're going to do an exercise room, clean it at least twice. At least twice. Because mm -hmm. the handles on the exercise machines, the buttons that people touch, you know, people are sweating, they're, you know, wiping their nose, whatever, high contamination levels. And so those need to be cleaned at least twice, maybe a third time. Um, so, Let's see what else. When contractors, uh, well, you know the importance of personal protective equipment. Uh, 
when they do a cleanup. Um, and then as custodians, modify their own procedures, their own protocols, uh, they should adopt some of those. I don't think they need to wear respiratory protection in normal custodial duties, but certainly disposable gloves, um, you know, quality products, understand cleaning with a detergent. Um, but if a restoration company is going to go in, individuals in that building were reported as testing positive for COVID-19. Um, some are recommending, you know, 24 hour dead period, turn off the HVAC yeah. system, let it sit. Um, I think that's fine. Uh, you know, viruses just don't do well without human tissue. And so there will be a death curve that will start just due to environmental exposure on different surfaces. A lot of surfaces, it's only going to be a matter of hours. Others, maybe a day or two or longer, but then you go in and you clean. So you shut down everything, let it sit 24 hours and start the cleaning process. Um, give uh, consideration for using air scrubbers during the cleaning process. And uh, then I recommend 24 hours following the cleaning. And then of course, having yeah. someone come in who is an HVAC specialist. So a company coming in, okay, you guys are cleaning. And whether it's during that cleaning or afterwards, the system's down, they can assess how well it's been maintained and cleaned. So do they feel the ducts need to be cleaned? Um, you know, are the filter banks maintained? Uh, who's been maintaining the mechanical system in general? So that's a good time to have that assessment done. And of those HVAC professionals recommend additional um, cleaning procedures, then fine. Um, I, th I think it's important too to note that like this is, like you said, it has, it's going to have some longevity about what, how are we going to change our processes? How are we going to incorporate more of these things, not only in times of crisis, but you know, in our, just our regular training, the way we regularly clean spaces? Um, how do you think how do you think BSC should approach that? Is it just as simple as like once the kind of this dies down and once things kind of get back to normal, we say, here's what worked, here's what didn't work, let's create a manual. Is it something like a physical thing that they should create or is it more of like a kind of a conscientious, like in the top of your mind type of thing? What do you think is the best way for people moving forward to understand the right way to do things? Wow. Well, there's going to be a lot of changes coming up. There's going to be manufacturers uh, that supply the cleaning industry uh, with improved equipment and products and so forth, you know, all geared toward, you know, COVID-19 in particular. Um, I would say, though, along with your question, that probably the best thing to do is for companies to upgrade their protocols and, again, slight modifications in terms of worker protection. Uh, how they clean, the products they use to clean, and the equipment they use. Um, one thing that's extremely important in that regard, uh, those that go in and do a cleanup, particularly for COVID-19 or in the future for another epidemic or pandemic virus, whatever it might be, um, just like sewage backflow remediation, okay? When you're done with one job, okay, you need to clean 
and decontaminate all of that equipment before you take it into another environment. Even though you're going to clean that one and you consider that one contaminated, uh, you never know what you're transmitting from one environment to another. So very similar. So I think there's going to be much more focused attention, let's say, on that regard. Um, and why do folks do that now with sewage contamination? Well, it's the infectious agent component primarily. Right. Uh, we've got everything in sewage. Um, in fact, I just had a paper published um, in the Cleaning Science Quarterly on the science of sewage. And uh, most people don't want to know what's in sewage, but <laughs> besides the infectious agents, there's a lot more in there. And so you have to be very careful and adjust your cleanup procedures accordingly. Again, you know, be guided by the science that's coming out uh, in that regard. Modify and slightly update your protocols. Make sure your workers are protected. Maybe have more regular training sessions um, and uh, reinforce those so that folks know, hey, this is mandatory, this is not optional. Or you can say you have to do this, this, and this, but here's an option here, here's an option. Um, and it depends upon what the environment is that you're in. So there has to be some flexibility. Um, and I probably haven't addressed everything you said previously, but I think we're all going to be deluged, uh, particularly in the media, uh, and particularly with cleaning and restoration publications and communications and magazines, and as well as scientific journals on, okay, here's what we've learned from the coronavirus pandemic of 2020, and we need to give heedance to that. And uh, it's going to take individuals, it's going to take scientists working with practitioners, working with um, management type personnel to filter that out and say, yeah, you know, this is it's a good way to modify our practice. It's going to get the job done for us. It also protects our workers. It's going to please our clients uh, and that type of thing. So, but I think we're going to be deluged with, um, you know, articles and interviews and podcasts and so forth. I'm not putting them down. I'm doing some of those myself. Uh, <laughs> when I'm, yeah. Well, I'm here talking with you. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to help uh, if, if I can to provide something from my experiences and those of my colleagues as we work together over the years dealing with these aspects of cleaning and decontamination and worker protection and so forth. Um, so there will be change. I think it will probably take, you know, uh, a few years, maybe two or three years before these industries get it together and are in, in agreement about how to do things and what to use in doing them. Um, you know, everyone wants to retain workers. The workers want to feel safe. Uh, so, and the usual questions that come up, you know, if you have um, someone on a cleanup crew for a coronavirus cleanup, it's a woman, she's fabulous, does a great job, now she's pregnant you want her doing a coronavirus cleanup, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I address this in coming up with industry standards, uh, for example, with uh, water damage restoration and sewage remediation and so forth. 
So um, I won't delve into that now. Uh, that's not a major issue, but uh, that worker can be adequately protected. Yeah. Well, those were all the questions that I had for you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. It's been, um, you know, it's been definitely a difficult time for us, but I think there's light at the end of the tunnel. And I think, like you said, there's a lot of great science and conversations coming out of this and that it's going to strengthen the industry going forward in a better way. I think so. That's a good summary. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of your day and um, stay healthy, okay? Thanks, you too. Wash your hands. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contracting Conversations from BSCAI. If you liked what you heard and you want to find out more or to listen to previous episodes, head over to bscaiorg podcast. There you can also subscribe to our newsletter so you never miss industry news, updates, and great tips. Subscribe to Contracting Conversations on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and learn more about our community on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube.